Here at Country Roads magazine for 40 years, with curiosity as our guide, we've been wandering the back roads of Mississippi and Louisiana, discovering and sharing Southern culture's most compelling stories. It's a chance to listen closer and discover more. And maybe laugh a little too. I'm James Fox-Smith, publisher. And I'm Jordan LaHaye-Fontenot, managing editor. And I'm Alexandra Kennan, arts and entertainment editor. And this is Detours, a new podcast from your friends at Country Roads Magazine. Y'all, we have a really exciting and interesting episode today that we're really looking forward to diving into. This is one that's going to be about tracing our family trees, about learning where we come from, about visiting our ancestral sites, and taking a closer look at our own family's places in this larger scheme of history. This one was inspired by a unique multi-part series that we've been running in Country Roads about all of those things, Nina Flournoy's Strange True Stories of My Louisiana Ancestors. And here to discuss this, we've got some really wonderful guests that we're excited to have join us today. The first of those is Jari Honore. Um, Jari is a New Orleans native and resident. He is a certified genealogist who works in the Williams Research Center of the Historic New Orleans Collection as a reference associate. He is a proud Louisiana Creole with roots he's traced back for more than two centuries along Bayou Lafouche and the German Acadian coast. He has over 20 years of experience researching families and institutions in South Louisiana and along the Gulf Coast. He has also served as a genealogy consultant and provided research for multiple television series and to the Georgetown Memory Project. He's also presented at several historical and genealogical conferences. Thank you, Alex. Jordan here, and I'm eager to introduce one of our newer writers, the author of the series Strange Shoes Stories of My Louisiana Ancestors, Nina Flournoy. Uh, Nina is a Dallas-based journalist, author, and editor with over 20 years of experience writing and editing international, national, and regional magazines and newspapers. She was also a longtime communications professor at Southern Methodist University, before leaving that position to work on her book about the Texas oil industry. She has an editing and consulting business where she provides writing, coaching, and consulting to help writers develop and actualize their books and other projects. We um, first heard from Nina, I think it's almost been a year, is that right? It's, that sounds it right. Yeah. Towards the end of last year, we heard from Nina um, where she pitched the first edition of this series. Um, and, and I think I didn't realize that it would go on for so long when I first read it, but nor did I, nor did you. <laughs> yeah. Immediately. I was just enthralled. Um, she sets out on this quest to um, return to Louisiana to learn about her ancestors. And it takes her all over the state and through various threads of Louisiana history Um not only is the story itself very compelling, but Nina has a great way with storytelling and um, draws in all these fascinating and unexpected encounters that sort of speak a lot to the culture and landscape here. Um, in that first edition, one of my favorite parts of it is that she arrives in St. Martinville to do research on her on her ancestors and just gets out of her car and encounters a boat 
procession celebrating 250 years of Acadian history in St. Martinville and and then jumps right in, takes part in it. Um, So that's part of what really energizes these stories. And we have so far published three of three editions of them, and we intend to continue on over the next probably year or so. I know that you've written quite a lot, Nina. So, oh yeah, that's yeah. the first I've heard. Yeah, <laughs> we we yeah, want that's... to we want to know how this ends. So, um, we've <laughs> me too we've really been enjoying it. Um, so, Nina, we were hoping that you would start by telling us um, a little bit about how you got started doing this and decided to get it into um into our pages or just get it published in general about this journey that you've been on yeah um okay um and thanks for that introduction it's uh doesn't sound like me at all it's much better (laughs) than what i would expect anyway i'm originally from louisiana my family has deep roots in new orleans but we moved to shreveport for my dad's job and so i grew up straddling shreveport in new orleans I, i was confused about where i was from um, when we drive through New Orleans, my parents would point out the window at the acres of above ground tombs and say, those are our people. So family history was always a, a vague interest. So as you mentioned, I was a communications professor at SMU, a left to right uh, history of the Texas oil business. That led to biographies and memoirs for other people. But it didn't occur to me to write my own family story until COVID shut down everything and gave me time. Um, to start organizing. Um, I'm not a genealogist, so I organize my family history in book form. I've written about 25 chapters so far, which sounds ridiculous, but I just couldn't stop. Um, I revised some into articles which I pitched to Country Roads, mainly because of the magazine's respect for great storytelling. I, I just love your magazine. And I basically wanted to tell the story of my attempts to prove or dispel one nagging theory that relatives had talked about over the years. And I described that in part one of my series. On that note, uh, would you mind reading us the introduction to part one um, and kind of giving listeners a brief introduction to what this is all about? Sure. Okay. A dead end seemed a good place to start in early 2020, the lost year. Life put on hold, I filled time returning to a familiar brick wall, the identity of my fourth great-grandmother on my father's planchard line. According to family lore, she was a French countess who fled the palaces of Versailles during the French Revolution and traveled under an assumed name to America, settling among Acadians on Bayou Teche, not far from where my grandmother, Bonnie May, grew up. In the 1960s, an uncle circulated a mimeograph copy of the story. When I recently asked relatives, no one remembered the document, which likely served as a coaster for bourbon highballs during family get-togethers. But they all recalled snippets of that story. Few planchards knew that our countess was also immortalized in George W. Cable's Strange True Stories of Louisiana, published in 1888. Cable, a distinguished writer who chronicled the lives of Creoles in his native New Orleans, is often required reading in Southern literature courses. I read some of his work in English class at LSU in the mid-70s, though not strange true stories. In 2023, excuse me, in 2003, I ran across a tattered copy in in a French Quarter vintage bookstore during Jazz Fest weekend. 
Flipping pages, I came across a passage about a countess who fled the French Revolution and ended up in Louisiana. Could this be her? Breathless, I bought the book and shepherded it through the quarter like it was uranium, vowing to discern if this was my relative and to track down what became of her. I'll stop there. Lovely. But that gives wow. you an idea of what lit a fire under me to start researching my family history. Sure, absolutely. And and there's something that's just so grabbing about the way that you're able to kind of take the reader with you on this journey. And I think a lot of us who have tried to look into our own family histories can relate to, to that experience of finding something and knowing that it's intriguing, but not knowing necessarily how accurate it is or how rooted it is in truth and in primary documents. Um, and, and goodness knows that that can be a really difficult task trying to riddle and sort of sort that out. So again, that's why we're excited to have Jari as a certified genealogist who has multiple decades of experience researching these families in South Louisiana and on the Gulf Coast, and who's also done extensive research into his own family lineage along the German-Acadian coast and Bayou Lafouche. Um, so I'm, I'm sure elements of, of Nina's story are familiar to you, Jari, um, having done so much research along these lines yourself. I was wondering what would be some sort of initial advice that you would give to someone like Nina who is starting in on a genealogical journey like this and might not know where to begin? Sure. And I would say uh, the best advice I could give to anyone is to capture um, the resources uh, that are available to you in the moment. Uh, to talk with older relatives, take down that oral history. Um, uh, there are some wonderful books and wonderful uh, cheat sheets that sort of give you leading questions that you can ask uh, your uh, older relatives, sometimes who may be a little bit on the on the taciturn side, to start talking about their family histories. Um, and also gather as much documentation as you can. Uh, relatives will say, you know, we just had that document or we just had that photograph, but it was thrown out. Or, you know, we cleaned on Susie's house. There's an old, every time an elder uh, dies, it's like a library burning down. And so I think that's very important. Wow, that's a really powerful comparison that, that an elder passing away is like a burning library. And I can absolutely see the validity in that. I mean, the, these relatives of ours are so often sort of that connection we have to that past of the ones who remember some of it directly. And um, of course, you know, as folks get older and their memories lapse or they pass away or houses get cleaned out, any number of things, you're so right that that can really make the difference in, in what kind of information we have to work off of. Well, you know, Nina mentioned that she is working partially from this George Cable book that it's sort of, you know, uh, scholars go back and forth on, on how accurate that might be. And she she even acknowledges in that first part, you know, that it, she that it might not be accurate um, and that she is sort of doing some fact checking in the process of her research. Um, what would you recommend for folks who might be approaching something like that where they're not sure how accurate a document might be? They might have, you know, records that are lacking or might not be from the best source. Right. Or myth, like oral history. There's so much myth and like stuff that's so difficult to verify. Um, how do you manage that? And what do you usually recommend to people as they're navigating that sort of thing? I would first recommend uh, not to be too wedded to those sources because there are always elements of fiction. Stories have been exaggerated or maybe expanded upon. We're fortunate in this day and age to have uh, some wonderful online resources, uh, Ancestry.com and MyHeritage, which are paid uh, you know, subscription-based services that are available. But then there's some great free websites like FamilySearch.org, which is um, a service of the Mormon Church, 
where they've digitized and transcribed records from around the globe and made them available. Um, but as as I was saying, Nina knows from her uh, explorations, and as I know, uh, at some point you're going to have to uh, go offline and travel to county and parish courthouses, to church archives, to university archives, um, and pursue documents that are have not been digitized. Yeah, I would I would agree. There's a wealth of online records that you can access today, which has gotten. That's why so many people have jumped in um, to this type of research because it does seem so doable on your own. But I'll tell you, after my recent phone conversation with Jari, I realized you can only go so far on your own. I gave him a couple of facts and names, and within minutes, he zeroed in on information I didn't know how to find. So I know I could go a lot further with the help of a professional genealogist like Jari. So that's my next step. Yeah, yeah. It seems like that's like the best um, sequence of events, I guess, if you're starting to get into this, like start if you just want to dive in online and there's hopefully some great information there and then you go to the courthouse and then these people like you, Jari, doing work like you, I, I know that the, uh, often libraries enlist the help of genealogists um, and certainly organizations like the Historic New Orleans Collection. Um, these are resources that are available to us guys and um, with such an intricate uh, set of histories that make up Louisiana. It's, um, I think it, it's so important to understand where we come from because it's often more complicated than we expect. I right. Yeah. I know Jordan Absolutely. and I do a lot of research on our end for country roads and we love doing research, but there's something to be said for, for calling in the professional when the time comes and especially with genealogy. Yeah. Um, you know, Jari, you just have such a depth of a background and a vocabulary for discussing it and a knowledge of these resources um, that can be so helpful for folks who are embarking in on projects like this. Um, well, I, I know Nina's piece, you know, covers a lot of, of different possibilities for ways that, that families and lineages can come to Louisiana. Um, you know, she, in part two, we get into a bit of, of talking about refugees from San Domingue. Of course, in part one, you know, Jordan already mentioned um, that in St. Martinville, you encountered the the procession, um, what, Fête du Dutèche, uh, yeah. right, um, that, that celebrates the, the Acadians coming to Louisiana and those refugees making their way down right. here. Um, so we have everything in Louisiana. Of course, you know, we, we've got folks who are descended from European settlers, who are descended from enslaved Africans, who are descended from refugees from San Domingue, refugees from Acadia up in Canada, or by any number of other means. As we know, our history here in Louisiana, like many places, can be very complicated. And um, rich. And rich, too. Absolutely. Complicated, rich. It's so amazing. All That's of those why I things. can't stop. There's just so much. <laughs> to yeah. be sure. Absolutely. Um, so Jari is someone who has helped a lot of different people look into their heritages, who has done extensive research into your own heritage, who's, who's followed Nina's story as well. I was wondering if you wouldn't mind speaking briefly to just, you know, the differences in researching lineages that come from all these different places and some of the different challenges that each of those situations presents. Well, you're, you've, you've summed up some of it. You're absolutely right. Louisiana has always uh, been home to a diverse group of individuals, uh, not only um, individuals who were um, forcibly uh, brought to Louisiana uh, from uh, primarily the Senegambia region early on, the indigenous people who have called this place home uh, for centuries upon centuries, but French Canadians, 
uh, uh, migrants who came here directly from France, from other parts of the French and Spanish Caribbean, like Saint-Domingue, which, of course, was home to the the Haitian Revolution. Um, The Spanish, during their uh, time uh, administering Louisiana, invited uh, Acadian refugees, people from the Canary Islands. We call them the Islenos population. People from Mayagar, you know, the ones who give their name to Nueva Iberia or New Iberia, where Nina's family uh, has uh, has called home. Um, all of these groups come here just in the um, 17th and, uh, and 18th centuries. And then in the 19th century, we start to get um, large groups of Germans and Irish and Italians. And I have to say, uh, particularly Sicilians. Because uh, if you know anything about Louisiana, they'll they'll point that out to you with Sicilian, not Italian. <laughs> um, so all of these groups help to make up the rich gumbo uh, that is Louisiana. Now, unlike uh, for uh, a lot of your listeners may be familiar with this from the southern states, we're relatively late to get vital records in New England uh, and other uh, places uh, for a little bit north of us. Uh, they have a tradition of vital records of birth, marriage, and death going back to um, the 18th century in, in many cases. Uh, not so in the South. We did not have civil records of births or deaths in Louisiana outside of our few um, urban city, urban areas until 1914. Wow. Uh, that so, you know, a lot. one of the first questions I sort of get to answer is uh, a lot of people will say, well, sir, I'm looking for my grandmother's birth certificate. And I'll say, well, where, when was she born? Oh, 1901, 1902. Where was she born? They tell me Liberia or Pearl Bridge or uh, Natchitoches or, or uh, maybe Donaldsonville. The answer is easy. There is no civil birth record. And that's across all populations, white, black, native, uh, and, uh, and otherwise. Um, so we rely heavily upon the records that were created um, by the uh, Roman Catholic Church, uh, who, uh, being a church that is sacramental in nature, they record baptisms, marriages, burials, first communions, things like that. And so by extension, these records serve as as genealogical sources for us. Wow, that that is so enlightening. And thank you so much for speaking to all of that variety. Because again, like we know that Louisiana has such a diverse and rich population today, but it's so fascinating to look back and and enlightening to look back at the reasons that, that so many of, of those folks and their ancestors came here originally. Um, now, here's one that, that might be kind of big and broad, um, and I would love to hear both of y'all's thoughts on it, Nina and Jari, if, if y'all want to contribute them, because um, I know we, we all have opinions on this, but we're talking a lot about how to do this research, but why? Why do y'all think that it is so important that we do this kind kind of research and that we look back at our own family trees to understand better where we ourselves come from and, and where our families kind of have their place in history? I can jump in there. <laughs> um, why is... is to me, it's it's a given at the risk of overstating the impact. I'd say it opens doors on who you are. It tells you what what you're made of. It, it throws a light on your fading, or in my case, invisible family line going way, way back. And I, the question that keeps occurring to me throughout my research is, why didn't anyone tell me this? Why did I not know this? When did the family stop passing along these stories? And the big question that keeps me jumping down research rabbit holes is, what else do I not know about my people? You know, the, so to me, it just it brings up more questions than than answers. 
it, it just makes me want to know more. Absolutely. Right. It's kind of like uh, Jari mentioned, the burning library. I've also encountered this desire to know everything, all of it. You know, once you yeah. get started, you want to know every detail. And, and obviously the past has passed and you can't know everything. But um, that desire to to grab hold of whatever you can find is, uh, it, I feel like once you get started, it's really hard. And to, Nina to and I back. have both yeah. spent time in, in the classroom. And yeah. um, I think that by pursuing what I call micro history, um, another term I like to use for family history or genealogy, um, it helps our young people. It helps uh, mature individuals to place themselves in American history and in all of the struggles, all of the triumphs, uh, that we've had as a country and as a people, um, it shows how uh, interconnected we we all really are. Um, our ancestors, uh, as as uh, just like ourselves, uh, we don't exist in bubbles. They were intimately connected to the preacher in town, the teacher in town, the shopkeepers, the the uh, clerks. All of these individuals played a part in our, our ancestors' lives. And so, when you really get involved in genealogy, you're not just uncovering you know, your direct lineage, you're uncovering the stories of communities. And I think that's so important. Yeah, and it's, it's also crazy how you end up getting interested in things you have absolutely no remote knowledge about or cared about 10 seconds before you found out something links you to that, like sugar. I never cared about sugar, but now I'm very interested in the sugarcane industry because I learned how invested my family was in the the sugar trade and so you know I've I found found these obscure reports of sugarcane production from the 1830s through the Civil War that consisted of boring rows of names with numbers of hogsheads that's the term for measuring sugarcane that each planter brought in annual annually you would think that would be mundane but those strings of facts illustrated how families living along both sides of the Mississippi River intermingled and married and then stretched my family line throughout plantation country. So things that you wouldn't think would be interesting, like a census, can be absolutely eye-opening. And so I, I urge people not to pass those by. Those drab things are very informative. Absolutely. Yeah. And it's just so, so important to learn about about these things of the past so that we can kind of contextualize our present as well and the ways that our current systems and yeah. institutions have, have been impacted by that. Um, I, I say that with a book mm -hmm. about slavery's impact on capitalism well, today, holding up my computer at the moment. Um, but anyway, so, yeah, so Nina, yeah. what you just said, you know, about researching sugar and your family's sort of plantation history up and down the Mississippi, that leads to something else that I wanted to ask, um, which is about your sort of uh, ancestral pilgrimage that you took to, to one of your ancestors' plantation sites. And you wrote about that, I think, really thoughtfully yeah. and beautifully. Um, so visiting those places, I never form, I never expected to form an emotional connection to people I've never known. But it's a double-edged sword because family history often has an ugly side. You know, I'm grateful and proud of, for all they went through paving the way for me. But on the other hand, I'm disturbed by their capacity for brutality, particularly among the wealthy sugar planters in my line. Slavery was bad enough, but slavery on sugarcane plantations was even more brutal. 
Um, so Jordan and I talked that through a lot. She helped me, you know, you know, try to drive that across um, in the context of my story. Um, but that's been hard to grasp. So you know, at, at the same time, it seems relevant, like you were saying, given the racial reckoning the country is experiencing today. Um, looking at it in the grand scheme of things, slavery, slavery really wasn't that long ago. So, you know, all this kind of converges. You're looking at the past, but you can't help but realize the context to the future, to, to current times. Absolutely. You know, as, as someone who is also a white person living in Louisiana, I think I personally have been hesitant to research my own genealogy out of fear of what I'll find, you know, and the kind of ickiness that comes with not wanting to, to confront that. But I do, you know, and, and yeah. your story has inspired me because it really is so important to recognize where we come from and the ways that those systems have impacted the world today. Um, and, and to do that in, in a really honest way, I think, is, is really important and powerful in a lot of ways. Well, and you asked about how to approach people, um, how to, you know, just butt in and say, hi, can I come to your house, please, uh, uh, during COVID? <laughs> um, so that was hard. But my advice on how to do that is just to be as open and honest about what you're doing that you can. Provide specific details and names so they know you're legit. Be polite, but don't give up. Mm -hmm. I, I did get lucky. The residents were extremely grace, gracious to grant me access to their homes and their property, and they even let me take some of their dirt. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure they thought I was nuts. <laughs> but, but just FYI, I funneled that dirt into tiny bottles, which I gave out to family at Christmas with a note yeah. saying, here's your piece of our family's plantation. Wow. You're welcome. Wow. <laughs> what, what a Christmas gift there. I was just going to mention that um, more and more Americans um, are grappling that history, uh, grappling with that history of enslavement um, from all angles: descendants of enslavers, descendants of enslaved individuals, descendants of traders uh, who were actively engaged in the the marketing of, of of these human beings. And I think that all of the work is extremely restorative; um, that it, it 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 has a healing effect to it. And I would just suggest to all of those who are researching and slave slaveholding families, as you're pursuing your research, please document and make available the names of the enslaved individuals you come across, because uh, in so many cases, records groups are not indexed, do not have those um, those uh, pointers available for the names of the enslaved, because in many cases rather than parties to those uh, transactions or life events, they are the um, sub they are the subjects of them. They're the, the, the property being bought, traded, mortgaged, or what have you. Um, so that that is something that would be very important and will help people to find their families. Wow, yeah, that's so um, that's so important and powerful. And part of some conversations we've been having at the magazine um, about places that are the, some of these plantation sites and how they're working to um, to shift into how they tell their stories. And uh, something that's been a big part of that conversation is are the challenges in finding records and understanding and telling the stories of the enslaved people there because there's such a lack of documentation. So the idea that um, individuals searching their family history might be able to contribute to that at all um, is very powerful. 
Yeah. And that idea of collaboration too. Absolutely. That's, that's a great piece of advice. I think that by helping share these records that we come across when doing research, especially those of us who might be a bit more fortunate if, if we come from a, a family descended from Europeans, we might be more likely to have written records of these things. So I think it is important um, to note that, that we should share those resources when we do come across um, the names of enslaved individuals or information about that. Because as Jordan said, that can be really difficult to research when all you have about some of those individuals are are, you know, um, uh, they called them slave counts in the day, but records of, of chattel slavery and birth and death records and things, things like that. Um, so that, that's that's good to be aware of. And I think it's important that we, we sort of can collaborate on those things and, and discuss about them moving forward. Well, I, I have heard from some of your um, readers uh, who, you know, told me that they've been, you know, trying to solve family mysteries, too. And, you know, a lot of people are nervous about what they're going to find and hesitant and they feel like, okay, well, where do I start and all that kind of stuff. And I, you know, I tell them diving in, into this without the expertise of a genealogist is going to be hit or miss, but do it anyway. You know, just go as far as you can and do it anyway, because I've learned as much from my misses as I have from my hits. It's a, it's all a learning curve, and and I I like that, you know. So, I would encourage anybody to do it. Do it anyway. That's right. I was going to say that there there are some wonderful through social media, uh, online communities uh, that have been formed of people who are pursuing the same family lines or who are researching in the same counties or parishes who are more than willing to share uh, their expertise, their pitfalls, um, and Local genealogical societies are always uh, a real gem. They're always a great resource in your in your research. Um, and for a nominal fee, maybe five, ten, fifteen dollars a year, you can be put in contact with individuals who have experience working in the areas that you're that you're researching, which you may have not ever actually had an opportunity to visit. And everyone's so interwoven. I, you know, every piece of information you find could contribute to someone else learning something about their family as well, which is exciting and makes the whole thing very collaborative. The whole genealogical thing, uh, world is, is, seems to be a very collaborative place as we just sort of build up the past and what happened before we were here. Yeah. You can see at the postscript on my last piece, um, I'm related to everybody I talked to down there. <laughs> Everybody, everybody, I turned around and, oh, I'm related to her too. So in Louisiana, I think you find that a lot. Absolutely. We're all related. Yeah. And I just love that word that you use, Jari, that it, that it really can be restorative on, on any end to, to sort of unpack and to look at this history and all, all of its different sides um, and to be able to move forward with that knowledge as opposed to from a place of ignorance. Um, so thank you so much for, for that and for, for lending us that vocabulary to discuss this. Um, well, and, and for those of you who, who might be embarking on a genealogical journey like Nina's, or maybe you've already unpacked a lot of your own family history and are looking for the next place to go with it, I'm delighted to say that Jari is actually offering a fantastic resource for folks to come and, and work with him as a certified genealogist to learn a bit more about how to do that sort of genealogical research, to learn how to upkeep um, and sort of preserve their own family trees. Um, and he'll be hosting a workshop at the Historic New Orleans Collection on Saturday, October 7th, uh, which is coming up in just a bit. So Jari, would you mind telling our listeners a bit more about that workshop and what folks can expect to gain from it? Sure. Over the past few years at the Historic New Orleans Collection, we've been 
um, extending uh, this sort of caring for series. We've done caring for your personal archives and collections. And so now we're having the next installment, which is caring for your family tree um, on October 7th. And it, I'm really excited. Uh, we're bringing in uh, wonderful professional genealogists from around the country, um, all of whom have experienced research, and particularly in the South, uh, and in many cases in Louisiana, covering things like DNA, advanced research methodology, really analyzing and giving a close reading to documents that you have in hand, and as well as, I think, an interesting session, being a good ancestor. How do you preserve, um, how do you share family stories, be it through uh, of a wide variety of media? Maybe it's quilting a family uh, quilt. It's a video. Maybe it's a YouTube uh, link. Uh, there's so many ways to get this information out there so that future generations will be able to look back and say, no, we're not relying upon some stained papers under the bourbon glass. We're, <laughs> we're looking at wonderful finished products that inform us about who we are. Absolutely. Yeah. So so thank you for that, Jari. That's great to know. It's even more comprehensive than I could have imagined. So y'all keep an eye out for Jari's workshop coming up on October 7th. Uh, if you're interested, we hope to see you there. And you can find a link to information about that, as well as a link to read Nina's Strange True Stories of My Louisiana Ancestors three-part story with more parts to come online in the show notes at countryroadsmag.com slash detours. Thank y'all so much for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This was fun. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, and if you're still with us at this point, we're going to assume that you do. Please subscribe to Detours, give us a rating, and maybe even send it to a friend. And if you're not already reading Country Roads magazine, you probably should be. To read online, find a copy, or subscribe to have the monthly issues delivered to your door, visit countryroadsmag.com. Detours is written, presented, and produced by us, the editorial team at Country Roads Magazine, James Fox-Smith, Jordan LaHaye-Fontenot, and Alexandra Kenner. Our theme music was written and recorded by Bill Daniel and Sam Shaheen of Naughty Professor and produced by Bill Daniel at Wild Child Studios in New Orleans. The Detours logo and other associated artwork was created by Country Roads Magazine's creative director, Courtney Zimmerman. And the audio editing for this season was done by me, Jordan Lahifatna, with the help from Alexandra Kinnan and Sam Shaheen. So, until our next detour, don't be a stranger. You can always reach us at detours at countryroadsmag.com. And thanks for listening.